The act which we call the purification of the Blessed Virgin really includes under one common name three different ceremonies of the old law. These three ceremonies have all mysteries hidden beneath them, and I propose to take the opportunity of the feast for giving some explanations of these mysteries, which are very beautiful ones, and bring out certain aspects of the life of both Mary and her divine Son in a very touching way. Two of these ceremonies, commanded by the Law of Moses, depended on the fact that women after childbirth were counted by this law to be unclean, and hence were required by God to withdraw from the temple and from intercourse with their fellows for a time, and after that to present themselves at the door of the tabernacle and there to purge themselves by offering a certain kind of sacrifice specifically prescribed. These two ceremonies, first the retirement and then the offering, concerned the mother only and had to be fulfilled whichever the sex of the child. The third ceremony concerned the infant. It was to be observed only in the case of men children, and then only the firstborn. The two first named legal regulations then are those that are specifically concerns the Blessed Virgin's share in today's feast. But do they really concern her? Was she in point, a fact absolutely bound to fulfill them, as were other women? Obviously not. This law of the woman's withdrawal and her subsequent purification sacrifice implies, as is expressly shown by the wording of the enactment in Leviticus, that she had brought forth her child in the ordinary way, that is, in concupiscence. Mary, as we know, had not done this. Her motherhood had sprung from faith and obedience alone, and she was wholly pure in it. Therefore, such a law, actually, could not touch her at all. If she fulfilled it, she did so merely as it was a general rule of universal application to women after childbirth, to which there was no reason for her to be accepted as far as appeared on the surface. Nevertheless, had Mary so chosen, she could have obtained the exception which was really her due from a law made for the sinful by proclaiming the truth about herself and her divine Son. Had she done so, she would have had every certainty of being believed and of having her dignity as mother of the Messiah acknowledged before men. In the first place, she had the truth to support her, always so powerful in itself when undoubtedly present, then the well-known beautiful innocence and purity of her own life, and the perfect sincerity with which everybody must have unhesitatingly credited her. Lastly, there would have been the unimpeachable testimony of such a man as Joseph to the fact that she who passes his wife was a pure virgin and had borne her child by the power of the Holy Ghost, whilst to his own assertion he could have added the miraculous assurance of the angel. Yet, in spite of all, Mary made no explanation whatever. She kept absolute silence and fulfilled the law simply, as if she were subject to sin like others, thus confirming amongst her fellows the belief that she was a married woman and had only an ordinary child. Now, this silence of Mary's, when obeying the law of her people, she presented herself at the temple, is the mystery hidden under the ceremony of her purification. And if we consider her history as recorded in the Gospels, 
we find that it is part of the practice she has followed ever since she had known of her own great dignity from the angel Gabriel. She had always refrained from proclaiming her exception from ordinary rules, and with the most wonderfully modest and self-restraint, had kept perfect silence on the subject. After just once breaking forth in her Magnificat to Elizabeth, and not even this, not till her cousin had spoken so as to show her own knowledge of the marvel that had happened. Others, we find, speak of her son as what he is. We know that the shepherds had done so at Bethlehem, and that Mary had kept these words and pondered them in her heart. But none of hers are recorded. Now, again, Holy Simeon pours forth his feelings on beholding the longed-for Messiah with fervor that might well have incited the mother who had stood by to break her silence. But she contents herself with listening, attending, meditating on what is said, and cherishing it in her heart. She does not speak. What is the reason of this wonderful silence and self-suppression in the Redeemer's mother? It is simply that she is his mother, that is, the mother of him who, after his glorious transfiguration, said to his disciples, Tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead, and who showed, by many other sayings recorded in the Gospel, that though he deigned to feel even some actual impatience for the humiliations of his cross, e.g., I have a baptism wherewith I have to be baptized, and how am I straightened till it is be accomplished? Yet he never had the slightest desire for his name to be manifested before the predestined time fixed by divine providence. Mary's feelings, then, were inspired by him that she might plainly show herself to be animated by the same spirit. Therefore she kept her greatest happiness for herself and God alone, sharing it with none but those to whom it pleased the Holy Ghost to reveal it. She waited for her Maker to disclose the wonder when it should be expedient for the glory of his own name. God, and Jesus her beloved Son, knew that she was a spotless virgin. That was enough for her. Surely, besides the mystery of its conformity to the conduct of Jesus, we have in this unbroken silence and reserve of Mary's a most beautiful picture of a soul perfectly satisfied with the testimony of God and its own conscience alone. Here she is, the fully enlightened mother of Jesus, content to be merely one of the listeners when her only son is the subject of discourse, not speaking if even when her own virginity seems to be in question, letting the world think exactly what it likes and what God chooses it to think, hiding her great glory and repressing all words concerning a joy that must be almost too great to bear. Here is indeed a model for all men how to make Jesus, the hidden God, who inspired this deep humility in his mother, satisfy all the desires of their souls, and to seek no human sympathy or approval in their sufferings or for their actions. The second ceremony, or more truly, the second part of the whole ceremony prescribed to the woman consisted in a particular kind of sacrifice that she was to offer for her cleansing. Now, different victims were allowed here, according to the circumstances of the person who offered them, 
As we know from the book of Leviticus, the usual one was a year-old lamb, and either a pigeon or a turtle dove. But if the woman who came from her purification was too poor to bring a lamb, then she might substitute it for a second turtle dove or pigeon, and so make her offering of two birds only. Hence the turtle doves or pigeons were especially the holocaust and sin offering of the poor. Which of these victims, then, was sacrificed by the mother of the King of Heaven? We find that St. Luke, in his account of Mary's purification, merely says that she came to the temple to make a sacrifice according as it was written in the Law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. He does not say which, and he does not mention the lamb at all. Now, there may be a mystical reason for this last omission. The evangelist very, very likely means to us to understand by his silence on that point that to offer a lamb in the temple when the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world was brought there himself would have been quite unsuitable. But if this is so, there is also undoubtedly another meaning attached to the absence of precision as to the sacrifice offered by Mary in St. Luke's account. And that meaning is to call our attention most particularly to the poverty of Christ and his Holy Mother. We are to understand that, whichever was the precise offering brought after our Savior's birth, it was certainly the offering of the poor. And this, next to the hiddenness, is the aspect of our Lord's life, and in union with him, of Mary's. That the Feast of the Purification brings out so strongly, it calls us to meditate on the fact that never was there a man poorer than was the Savior of mankind on earth. His foster father had to earn his living by the work of his hands, and he himself had not a place of his own whereon to lay his head. If has sometimes been the case of the world's history, both great and holy men have had the nature of their careers indicated at their birth by the appearance of certain marvelous signs. It may indeed be truly said that the beginning of our Redeemer's life was an exact prognostication of his after years. The most wretched of mankind have usually at least some little miserable place that they can call their own, in which their children may first see the light, whilst he was rather exposed than born in a stable, rejected even by his own people. The very sign by which the shepherds should know him was being laid in a manger for a cradle, and this first indication fully carried out to the very end. For was he not even buried in a tomb not belonging to his mother, and wrapped and embalmed with linen and spices given in alms by his friends? Hence he chose the sacrifice brought for his mother's purification should be in keeping with the rest, and should serve as yet another reminder to us that the King of Glory, being rich, became poor for our sakes, that through his poverty we might be rich. We must now shortly consider the third ceremony included in the law, and in doing this shall see that there was a further reason for the poverty of Mary's offering, in the fact that the presentation of Jesus himself was a symbol of that very death which was to be so utterly destitute. The third ceremony consisted in bringing every firstborn man-child to offer him to God at the altar, and then redeeming him by a certain sum of money 
as a testimony that the child belonged by right to God and that the parent kept him only by a special kind of arrangement. Two reasons are given in the book of Exodus for this regulation, but only one of these belongs strictly to the mystery of today, and it is one worth considering. Almighty God, in order to show his dominion over all things, was accustomed to exact the first fruits of everything as a kind of tribute and acknowledgement by which man testify that he holds his possessions only by his Maker's magnificence. For this reason, he required that all the firstborn of men and of animals should be offered to him as the master of all. Hence, immediately after the words by which the consecration of the firstborn is ordered, sanctify unto me all the firstborn as well of men as of beasts. He adds the reason, for they are all mine. And he exacted this tribute particularly in the case of men, that he might be recognized as the true head of all the families in Israel, and that in the persons of the eldest sons who represent the stem of the family, all the other children might be devoted to his service. Thus, the firstborn were separated by this offering from common and secular things, and passed into the ranks of holy and consecrated ones. This is why the law is promulgated in these words, Thou shalt yet apart all that openeth the womb for the Lord. Tertullian has called Jesus our Savior, the illuminator of the old law, which was only established to typify the mysteries of his life, and the saying is especially applicable here, for who was ever more completely sanctified to the Lord than the Son of God himself, whose mother was filled with the power of the Holy Ghost? He was truly the firstborn of every creature, as St. Paul calls him, and he is moreover the firstfruits of the whole human race. Today, therefore, they come and offer him to God at his holy altar, to testify that in him alone we are all sanctified and renewed, and that through him alone we belong to the Eternal Father and have access to the throne of his mercy. It was this that made him say in his great prayer for his disciples, and for them do I sanctify myself, that so the prophecy might be fulfilled which promised our fathers that in him all nations should be blessed. That is, sanctified and consecrated to the divine majesty, such are his prerogatives as eldest son of the Father, and such our obligations to that devoted firstborn, our Savior Jesus, who sacrificed himself for love of us. And here we may be profitably called to mind the words of the 39th Psalm, which St. Paul puts into our Lord's mouth in his epistle to the Hebrews, which seems to apply exactly to the ceremony we are considering. St. Paul says, Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Holocaust for sin did not please thee. Then said I, Behold, I come. Meaning, the apostle understands, that he came for the work of our salvation. Observe that our Lord is described as saying these words when he first enters this world. Ingredient in mundo. Now, the child Jesus was but six weeks old when they brought him to present to God in the temple, 
so that one might truly look upon him as only just entering the world. We may therefore represent him to ourselves as offering himself voluntarily to the Eternal Father, at the same moment that his mother presents him according to the old law as her firstborn, in place of all the ancient victims, so as to perfect us forever by the oneness of his sacrifice. Hence this ceremony is truly, as I said above, a preparatory symbol of his passion. And here is the deep mystery hidden in that special part borne by the Holy Infant in the great act of today. And what, we may naturally wonder, were Mary's own feelings and thoughts on this mysterious presentation of her Divine Son. Undoubtedly, she entered fully into the spiritual meaning of the ceremony and united her will and intention to those of the Infant Savior himself. Just as she had given her full and free consent on that day of the Annunciation to the Incarnation of the Messiah, so we cannot doubt that she now ratified with her whole heart the covenant he made on being offered as a victim for his people about his passion and death. This conviction is strengthened by Simeon's words, for the holy man, after uttering all his joy and gratitude at the sight of the Messiah in his Nunc Dimittis, turns to Mary and makes that strange and sad prophecy of the sword that is to pierce her mother's heart. We cannot believe that he would have been inspired to do this on an occasion that appeared outwardly to be full of nothing but joy, had it not been that, amongst the many things about her son which Mary had to keep and ponder in her heart, was the knowledge of the bitter chalice he would have to drink at the consummation of the sacrifice begun on this day. This subject will be more fully treated in connection with another feast, which we have to learn now is that the three mysteries concealed beneath the ceremonies of the purification should be to us so many reminders when we reflect on them that the life of Mary with Jesus on earth was to be not only a hidden and a poor one, but a life full of the inward and unspoken sufferings of painful anticipation. All alike freely accepted by her with absolute perfect conformity to the spirit of her Son and the will of the Eternal Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.